You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season eight, episode seven. Thea Matthews is a San Francisco-born poet, orator, and activist whose work centers on the complexities of humanity, grief, and resiliency. I had the opportunity to talk with Thea earlier this year about her debut poetry collection published by Red Light Lit titled Unearth the Flowers. Thea's empowering poems provide a path to healing and illustrate how survivors can find a safe place within themselves to reclaim their own identity and sexuality. Her book has been described as an electrifying letter to family, country, and self. Unearth the Flowers is relentless in its journey through stages of grief and healing while celebrating life. This is my conversation with poet and activist Thea Matthews. Thea, thank you so much for joining me on Makers and Mystics. It's an honor to have you on the show today. It is an honor to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. You just released a book called Unearth the Flowers. And my understanding is that it's a meditation on grief and healing while simultaneously celebrating life. Can you unpack that a little bit for the listeners today? Yeah, totally. So this is my uh, first debut poetry collection, Unearth the Flowers. And how I see this first collection really as a, an affirmation, you know, a self-affirmative set of poems that really serve as a way to alchemize trauma, alchemize discomfort, memory, and turn it into something where it then becomes part of a journey, part of just breakthroughs, really. You know, um, so much of Unearth the Flowers is reclamation of the body and reclaiming power. You know, in terms of what it says, it's like, it's an electrifying letter to family, country, and self. Unearth the Flowers is an essential collection, relentless in its journey through stages of grief and healing, right, while celebrating life. And so it serves as this anthem of resiliency. It's a testament to survival, uh, a triumph, really, like triumph over trauma piece, where each poem interacts with nature, the flower, and breaks silence, right? Where it takes on this feminist ideology of that the personal is political, and where I interweave memory and nature to depict the flower, to depict the scene, to illustrate the nonlinear nature of healing. Well, I know that each of the poems in this collection pulls from a different flower as a metaphor, whether it's a gardenia, hydrangeas, iris, lotus. How do these flowers serve as metaphors for such deep personal experiences? Yeah. You know, when you see a flower, you know, it's like, oh, so dainty, so fragile, right? Uh, it's often given like as a bouquet or um, reserved for different or special occasions. And um, flowers are the root of medicine. Mm-hmm. Flowers hold the, the sanctity and sacredness of land, of spirit, 
and this um, playing on this paradox of like looking at the fragility of life, but also the resiliency, right? The endurance, the relentless nature of a flower that comes back seasonal, whether it's annual or perennial, and how that then relates to the body, right? Is that like, oh, one has often said like, oh, the body is so fragile. But is it? Because at the same time, the body and the mind is absolutely enduring. We can survive a lot, right? Mm-hmm. I know that. I feel that. And at the same time, we're still fragile, right? We're not indestructible. We're not made of steel. We're not made of metal. And so it's working with that dichotomy. Mm-hmm. I'll read the prelude as a way to ground. And this is what opens, right? This is precedes the two sections of the book. On earth, the abuse, repetition of bruising the spirit, the silence two o'clock in the morning, the mother in silence, the memories of a child, the child, mother, stolen, the generations like weeds ossified, the apathy of those already dead with a pulse, The time said once more, shh, don't tell nobody. The refusal to believe me when I tried to speak, the suffering of seeking vengeance, the vengeance to kill, the rage inflaming my body, the truth on my lips, the screams in the back of my throat, the cries trapped in my teeth, the tongue clipped, now regrown, unearth the flowers. So this debut poetry Mm -hmm. collection breaks silence, testifies to the experience, right? Testifies of the healing or to the healing rather. It brings Mm -hmm. to light what has been buried, right? What has been silenced, um, the stigma of abuse, the stigma of sexual violence, the stigma of trauma. And it's like this has occurred, right? It increases survivorship visibility in a new way. Mm -hmm. What drew you to flowers as a means of expressing these experiences? Yeah, initially it occurred organically, right? So the first two poems that I wrote for this collection, one, I didn't know I was writing a book, right? It kind of came and it presented itself over time and as I kept working on the poems. But initially they were responses to a prompt Uh, When I was an undergrad at UC Berkeley, I enrolled in Poetry for the People that is now currently led by Aya DeLeon, and that's who I studied with. But it was really a program that June Jordan, the late June Jordan, really catapulted into like a new way, um, put P for P on the map. And so, you know, Aya in her classes was like, write a poem of self-affirmation. So the first poem became this letter to my grandfather, Lilac. And in the end, you know, I go through a journey of memory of what I remember, of what occurred, and then affirming that I am a field of lilacs, right? Like, you have no power over me. Mm-hmm. You have no power over me. And interweaving spirituality and the elements of water and the Orishas of the Yoruba tradition of Yemeya, bringing that into the front, on the front lines for fighting back, right? For reclaiming mm-hmm. the little girl that was stolen, for uh, abused, violated. And then mm-hmm. a second poem, Hydrangea, came from a prompt of love as resistance. Mm, I love that phrase. 
right? Love as resistance. And I, was I like, love it. Hmm. And I was like, where <laughs> could I take this? And where my, you know, where the muse took me was essentially a letter to my mother. Right. And that looks at essentially like the bystander effect, right? Where if we remain silent to injustices, no matter how big or small, right? Like actually the spectrum, the measurement of injustice is irrelevant really. But you know, whoever, as long as we stay silent, then by proxy, we are also guilty of the crime itself. Mm. But at the same time, you know, this poem then circles back with, I still love you. Like, I love you and I forgive you, right? Mm-hmm. The closing lines for Hydrangea, it closes with, I see you and I forgive you. I hold my truth regardless if you hold mine too. And so I bring in these elements of accountability, of taking responsibility for my healing, taking responsibility for closure, for forgiveness, so I can be free, right? So much mm-hmm. of healing is a breakthrough. And each poem and flower helps usher this breakthrough. And using like, so yeah, first was lilac, then hydrangeas. And then over time, it started to just kind of, like I was being led by the flower or I was studying flower essences. And then I was starting to do my own research on flower symbolism and the language of flowers and which flower pertains to what, hence the glossary in the back, right? And so with like lotus, for instance, I mean, that's always a strong metaphor of resiliency of blooming from mud. You know, it has purity, but it's really, and patience. And it has that triumph over trauma piece. Mm -hmm. And so incorporating elements of that, where a lot of these poems really carry the strong thread of self-affirmation and love as resistance. And it seems like the process of writing these poems played a central role in your own journey of personal healing. Yeah, you know, and it takes a lot of work. I mean, I've done enough um, internal work for me to even get to this point. Because I think writing, like, I could not have written this poem five years, like these poems five years ago, 10 years ago, right? So it was the time was ripe and the seeds were planted. And so I was ready then to like sit with pen to paper and write, you know? I think this collection gives more voice and boisters survivorship visibility and advocacy, really, as an extension to the healing process. One thing you mention is that the book details a mind, body, and flower at the intersection of the personal and the political. I'm really curious about that intersection of the personal and the political. Can you tell me about that? Oh, yes. I mean, everything is political. The body, the woman's body has been historically political, right? Mm. Yes, I pull from today's political climate and I pull from historically the racial climate, right? Of what does it mean to be black, uh, to be somewhat considered an endangered species, if you will, right? To be under attack and having to endure years of systemic oppression. Mm-hmm. And so I mean, what comes to mind with that statement of looking at the intersection is this poem, Chrysanthemum. The mind is what holds ideas, beliefs, narratives, storylines that you know we think are so true when they're really not. And I say trauma, that encompasses, that's a really broad term, right? 
So I'm not just talking about like child sexual abuse. Trauma can be gentrification. Trauma is gentrification. Trauma is this family displacement, families being ripped apart from each other, forced to go into internment camps. So I say trauma in a very broad sense, right? It's a broad mm-hmm. stroke of a term that I'm using. And so looking at that, it's uh, the body keeps score. The body holds on to memory. Memory lives in the mind. There's also memory in the body. And then the flower has that cycle and memory of when to blossom, when to grow, when to die. It's seasonal, but it's also based in how it interacts with circumstances. So it's this interaction with the external world. And so that is that intersection between external and internal. The mind is internal. The body is the person. The flower is nature, the land. I love as well how this book for you started as a deeply personal journey, as a deeply personal experience. But I can't help but think how the focus of your book is so timely for the cultural moment that we're living in. Because not only was this personal for you and a pivotal part of your process in healing, some of the trauma of childhood that you mentioned, but how right now our own culture is in need of such healing and in need of having the voices of poets and artists and those who can help us to grieve in healthy ways. You know, and I've, I've read so much recently about grief. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I've just happened to see it online in different places about grief and the need to grieve in healthy ways and how to deal with loss. And, you know, of course, with 2020, has been such a crazy year of loss for so many people, uh, especially artists and entertainers, you know, in some ways, uh, but all of us. And I love the timeliness of the book here. And I love how you mentioned earlier as well that the flower embodies both the beauty and fragility, but also resilience and healing in one form. Mm-hmm. And so I love how not only are you combining the interior with the exterior, but you're also bringing the personal and the political or the personal and the cultural together in one space. Yes, which can be challenging and hard to articulate at times, mm-hmm. honestly, because it's complex, right? Yes. And so... As a society, we are at a critical moment for collective healing. But the choice Mm -hmm. is there. Are we going to heal? Are we going to grow? Or are we going to die? And then individually, we also have the choice to either grow or die. And my favorite acronym for God, guess what it is? Grow or die. Wow. (laughs) And um, I just, I love that, you know, because that's Mm -hmm. really where it's at, where I find my God is in the present moment. And so much of what I do as a poet is where I tap into the source, right? I, I don't want to speak on behalf of artists. I mean, I am, a, I am an artist, but I just, I'm a poet, right? So I just, I'll just identify myself as a poet. But it, there's a spiritual practice to it. Like, you know, I can have an idea, a concept, a theme, but it's not until I show up and when it, the poem really occurs is when I surrender, is when I bear witness to what is then unfolded. And so there was definitely a point when working on, with unearth, like on Unearth the Flowers where I was then being led. I was being led to the flower. I was being led to the message to which flower is going to speak to what aspect of healing, of trauma, of grief, of resiliency. 
and it is a very timely collection because it speaks to and it intersects Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement, right? It's not separate. Like the movement is the movement. We can't demand accountability and an end to structural racism while children are being raped by their grandfathers and fathers and uncles. We Mm. can't address transphobia without looking at domestic violence. It's all together. You know, it's a manifestation of abuse of power. It's a manifestation of instincts running riot, right? And just absolute chaos of mind and body. And so how to bring spiritual order in, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. It's acknowledgement. It's breaking the stigma. It's, it's unearthing, unearthing what we don't like to, to always talk about. We can only hide so much. And so in many ways, I'm actually quite grateful. Like, yes, 2020 has been challenging to say the absolute least. <laughs> but I think this is one of the greatest years of humanity. Or at least in yes. my lifetime. Like, you yes. know? Totally. Well, I love, again, pulling from the description of the book when you talked about moving through the stages of grief and healing while celebrating life. And that just strikes me as so important because as we move through the challenging and sometimes crazy environments of, of this year and of, of this cultural moment, that healing and grief are not over against a celebration of life. And I, and I think that we have to continue in hope. Mm-hmm. You know, as human beings, I, I often say that, you know, we have a need for beauty as well as bread. Yes. Yes. And I love that your poems, even while dealing with grief and dealing with healing and dealing with systemic racism or dealing with personal trauma, there's still an aspect of celebrating life and, and even looking at the flower as such a form of beauty. I, I, I love that, that one is not without the other, that celebrating life can be in the midst of grief. Oh, yes. Oh, very much so, right? It's stepping away from this extremist way of thinking, right? If it's either, mm-hmm. you know, it's pure sadness or it's pure joy or I'm either happy or I'm not. And it's like, no, it's complex. Like, I can experience grief and still be grateful. Mm-hmm. I can still have moments of joy in the midst of sadness. Like, yeah, you know? And so the celebration of life is, yeah. Is, I mean, all things, all beings, right? Like, everything is alive. The flower is alive. Memory is alive. Recognizing and celebrating in a sense, first requires acknowledgement, acceptance, and then also, too, deep reverence. Mm-hmm. Um, what I've come to realize, right, in terms of at least with spiritually-based principles, acceptance requires reverence. Mm-hmm. I was reading a book recently. It's called The Reenchantment of Art. In the book, the author talks a lot about how since the Enlightenment, we've moved more towards scientism and rationalism and somewhere along the way we've lost an appreciation for mystery we've lost an appreciation uh, for these unexplainable things and she's calling for the re-enchantment of life through art and what you were saying reminded me of that idea yes because people want things explained 
And like, no, we don't always have to, you know, it's kind of, it, it, it can zap the fun out of it really. Or like the right. mysticism, it's like, no, like, can you explain yes. God? You know, that's kind of been always the ultimate test too. It was like, well, since God is unexplainable, then God does not exist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, huh, you know, yeah. like why yes. does everything require an explanation? What's the emphasis right. on that? And I think that goes back to, colonialism really right systemic mm. oppression because it was all about classification if you can classify you then stratify you and so it's been used against us wow and so how to decolonize art wow decolonizing art let's lean into that for a few minutes what do we need to know about that <laughs> it's it's necessary <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, um yeah like decolonizing the canon right of, of literature, which there is, there's a plethora of poets of color that are just now, and not even now, and I say now meaning like the last century, right? And the last 50 years specifically, that have really been like given spotlight to their craft, to their credibility, and to their work. And there's still so many people we don't know yet, right? Hopefully we will, but we don't know because yes. historically their voices have been silenced. And, you know, and so I just think like the approach to art as well as who says what, you know, is just radically changing. Like that too is part of the revolution, if you will, that's occurring mm-hmm. today. Which that excites me. That really does excite me. Right? <laughs> it's exciting. And we also get to have more ownership of our stories. Mm-hmm. And that's also to circle back to, right, of that intersection of how like the personal is political and incorporating the body and mind with nature, the flower is looking at who says like, who can say my story, right? Like this comes from me where it gives this different lens that someone else wouldn't normally have, right? Like they can see, identify and be, you know, they're invited to come along for the journey. Cause that's, that's all that this is, right? Grief is a journey. The healing process is a journey. The resiliency to, be buried and then rise is a journey. Mm-hmm. So good. Let me ask you this because you are an artist as well as an activist. What do you feel is the artist's responsibility for us today in this cultural moment? Oh, that is a very great question. The responsibility of the artist today is to show up, create, speak up, be present, and share. It's a disservice to hide the art and to allow external circumstances to limit us. You know, one of the last few days that I was in San Francisco, it was beautiful to just see musicians out on the street. I've never seen so many musicians out on the street because, you know, venues are closed. Cafes are closed. Yes, we are social distancing. Or, um, and I mean, they were very much isolated. I'm not trying to like break anyone's cover here. But how I saw it was, People were like, enough's enough. Like, I need to play and be heard and be seen. Yes. And so there was like just musicians out and about on the street, finding some pocket where they can just play their guitar, play on the drums. You know, there was even a DJ out who brought their like whole <laughs> set. And I was like, wow. I love it. You know? And so that's one way, right? But like, more so too politically is to bring it into their work. To acknowledge it. We are the bearers of truth. We are the carriers 
of history, oral tradition, you know, specifically, that's what I'm reflecting on is that like, how does history get passed down by what, by what is told, by what we see, by what we feel and hear, right? So whether it's song, a painting, a poem, a sculpture, it's all important artifacts that confirm and validate the experience and the people, right? We have an obligation to the people. I think the responsibility of the artist is to check the premise, to check the purpose of who am I, who am I for right now, right? Who am I speaking for? How do I want to utilize the medium that has been so gifted to me to tell a story, to deliver a message, the message, whether that is seen, felt, heard, tasted, right? Like cooking could even be an art. Like it's all valid. It's all important, mm-hmm. right? It's capturing these moments, remembering these moments and getting more involved. Well, that leads me into another question, which I've read the phrase poetry as an insurgent act. Mm-hmm. And even for myself, I've kind of used the hashtag for some of my own poetry called poetry is my protest. I'd love to know some for you. How is poetry an insurgent act? Oh gosh. I mean, it just is period. <laughs> like unearth the flowers, break silence. It breaks stigma. It brings to light the declaration of power, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, a reclamation of the body. So that's just first, I mean, the, my newer work even, you know, goes in deeper with survival and addressing interrogating political issues and politicians and looks at how aspects of society disregard life. Mm. And so it exposes that. And so poetry for me is always an insurgent act, regardless of what I write, because of what it has to do with intentionality. And intentionality is so important, right? Because that's like, that's the essence. That is what is backing up the words, the imagery, the metaphors and similes. You know, I am just so grateful that we have, to an extent, I mean, we do, like freedom of speech, you know? Right. I'm just so grateful that I can write a poem, and I have written poems that have really spoke against the police killings Mm-hmm. Of that, um, yeah, of police brutality, you know, mm-hmm. and I won't like. I have not been arrested. <laughs> I hope to not get arrested for a poem, you know. <laughs> but right. and, you know, and um, but that's the risk that we take, right? To create is that responsibility of the artist is to not be tied down. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. Um, is that we speak our truth and that we bring to light what is being said because it's like. In the gospel, it says, in the beginning, there was word. Word precedes creation. And the importance and political power of poetry is that we have the capacity to then create a new world, right? A new society, a new system, period. Well, you mentioned the gospels, and I know that your work has deeply spiritual foundations, and you have quite a diverse background of different spiritual traditions and religious influence. You've had Yoruba, Buddhist, Jewish, and Christian traditions. I think you told me that you grew up Roman Catholic. I'd love to know 
how do you find reconciliation within some of these different backgrounds or, or how have you found that they have informed you as an artist? <laughs> <laughs> just a small, just a small question. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's real good. That's great. That's, that's, that's good <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's times where I, uh, I can consider myself like, oh, am I now a Christian mystic? But I'm like, no, that's, that's a great, oh, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> mm, the principles is what I really hold on to. I don't get caught up on the little, to me, they're minute details. Like, I don't care, you know, whether it's Buddha or Jesus. Um, they're all homies. Um, <laughs> You know, it's uh, it's <laughs> what I. I'll say that's the first time I've ever heard that. You know, Jesus, Buddha, they're all homies. <laughs> <laughs> they are for me. They're good friends. You know, um, great role models, and I learn a lot from uh, how to live. They inform my way of being in the world. Because yeah, I've I've gone to like synagogues and I've celebrated like Passover. I've done Shabbat, I've done Sunday church, I, you know, done Dharma. And um, the takeaway from, from my experience is, yeah, is allowing my heart to open, just to open. Like, can I open my heart? Because it's very quick and easy to harden, right? It's very easy now to just shut down. And, um, it takes a lot of work and practice for me to keep my heart open, to show up to the page, to create, to be kind, right? Like I can justify my reasons to not be kind to others because of the trauma I endured or, you know, the body I live in or the city and state I live in. And it's like, why? You know, like, no, I don't want to, I, I, you know, I've lived like that. And in many ways that was bondage. In many ways, that was actually, it kept me, it was very isolating. And so spirituality keeps me open. You know, I know that kind of sounds vague. No, it's good. Okay, cool. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It, you know, it actually ties back in. I'm going to bring this back around to your book. You're going to like this. I'm going to be impressed with myself. You ready? I'm ready. So hard hearts don't easily produce, neither does hard soil. Now, I know that some flowers do grow in hard soil, so I'm not trying to be too dogmatic there, but there is a principle that that good soil that's tilled up, that is porous and open and receptive like you're talking about, there's a relationship yeah. you know, between the, the state of the heart and the state of the soil. You mentioned the gospel earlier in that in the gospel, you know, Jesus talked about different states of, of the heart like they were different types of soil. And I just think it's beautiful for your book that focuses on the flowers and thinking about the heart as a soil bed. You know, what is the condition of the, of the heart? What is the condition of the soil? And I love what you said about being open. That's beautiful. Wow. Now that is beautiful too. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> That's good. Mm. One last thing before we go, I would love it if you could share a couple of your poems with us today. Would you be willing to do that? Yes, sure. 
Tell us which ones you have. I have Gazania. I alone extinguish that raptorial yearning to taste butter on tongue, rub honey between fingers, tangerine lips pucker up for a kiss when planted in full sun, when dresses silhouette the galaxy of my body among sequined stars, rhinestone laughter. I open when planted in full sun, flow of Oshun, I exceed the price of elephant tusk, freshwater's bow, continents offer ripe oranges and cinnamon to boil the bones of who stole my mother's body. And then uh, I have Azalea. Do not underestimate my power. I am woman, the divine feminine. My time is now. I barricade the drilled wells once punctured into my womb. I excavate each hook oil pipeline once pierced inside me. My skin, the cerise, my body, these petals cannot be stretched any further by despotic hands. My water is sacred. My love is pure. Despite contamination and abuse, I fought to live, now live to thrive. Do not underestimate my power. I am woman. Wow. Well, Thea, thank you so much for joining me on Makers and Mystics. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and I'd love to sit here and talk with you for two more hours about all this. It's your path, your journey, and all that you're doing, your art. It's so fascinating to me, and I can't wait for our listeners to encounter your work. Uh, Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm really grateful, yeah, for this whole experience. Thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Makers and Mystics and leave us a kind review on iTunes. If you'd like to support the production of these podcasts or to join our creative collective where we host regular book clubs, online discussions, and offer additional patron-only content, you can find us at patreon.com slash makersandmystics. We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art. Thank you.